Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. Welcome into the Lions 24-7 podcast. We've brought aboard the third member of our Lions 24-7 team. Mark Brennan is in with us for this episode of the Lions 24-7 podcast. Uh, Sean Fitz, Tyler Donahue here as always. We've got a lot to get to. We're going to discuss the remaining group of freshmen who have now arrived on campus. The entire 2020 recruiting class officially accounted for with the Penn State roster at this point. Uh, we're going to look at an uh, all-decade team that came out from the Big Ten Network. Four Penn State players are first team or second team selections uh, running through the conference's best players from 2010 through 2019. Here for some perspective on Mark and Sean, who covered the Penn State for that entire decade, on uh, who they see maybe fitting in that's not on the list and, and their reaction to the four who made it. And also our 24-7 Sports Big Ten media poll was produced on Tuesday, something that I contributed towards uh, several writers across the, the Big Ten market for 24-7 Sports kind of cast their vote. Big Ten East, Big Ten West, Player of the Year. So we'll look at some of that, see where Penn State stacks up. And uh, no surprise, Ohio State uh, recipient for a lot of votes across the board uh, for that media poll. And that's the program that we've discussed, Penn State trying to uh, track down and uh, maybe surpass along the way in the Big Ten. But right now, uh, we're going to refocus. So we're going to get into some basketball as well. Controversial moment uh, early in the week for Penn State to address during, a, you know, obviously a very uh, interesting time for our nation in terms of, uh, of these kind of moments. So we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Mark Brennan covers Penn State basketball for us, does it as well as anybody, has, has had his finger on the pulse throughout the Pat Chambers administration with Penn State Hoops. So all that in just a moment. But Sean, let's start with your reporting coming last week. Kevon Lee, Kaziah Izzard, uh, running back, defensive lineman, respectively. We were waiting to see when they would join this freshman class that has happened, as you reported uh, last Friday. And and I guess pretty neat and tidy considering the circumstances with this freshman group. It's it's been interesting to watch over the years as as James Franklin since James Franklin has been here they've not had a single player not make it to campus so I mean that's uh, that, I don't know too many coaches that can put that feather in their cap that was pretty remarkable to see and Kazaya Izzard Kevon Lee two guys that had transfers throughout their high school so a lot of this was transfer related transcript related things like that so. Um, took their time getting them in. Uh, the, re- the rest of the class showed up in late June, the weekend of, of June 22nd, actually. Uh, a little bit behind was Izzard. He came in uh, a week and a half ago, and then Kevon Lee made it on Friday afternoon. So, I mean, just kind of tied up in a neat little package. It's good to have all those guys on board, especially, you know, when you go 27 for 27, that's, uh, you know, that's a pretty good number. So, uh, to get those guys in the right direction, get them here, get them quarantined so they can get working out, especially for a guy like Kevon Lee, who, you know, hasn't played a ton of football recently. We talked about that on the on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago is, you know, does he factor into that running back room? I, I see Izzard as a, as a redshirt guy no matter what. 
going to transition to being a defensive tackle, was a defensive end at DeMatha. But just having both those guys, um, you know, to add to the the 11 early enrollees, the junior college guys, the uh, the other guys that came in as a freshman, just to have that group together and, and moving in the right direction, kind of, you know, get their feet wet. You're not sure what the future holds still in terms of when they'll actually play a game or anything like that. But at the same time, get them in the right direction. Uh, have them learn what they need to do as players to uh, as college players to, to to sort of learn how to work. And that's the thing that you and I had talked about, uh, you know, throughout that shutdown is, hey, some of these guys are are at a disadvantage because they thought they worked hard in high school. That that wasn't necessarily the case. So, I mean, uh, the, the, getting these guys in under Dwight Galt is a big step. And to get all these guys on campus and, and wrap it up very neatly, they were, you know, our sources were confident they were going to get in. And turns out they they were right. 16 additions to the roster this summer, 14 of them uh, coming off of their senior year of high school, two out of the junior college level. Here on the podcast, you heard from one of those, Jair Brown, going to be playing uh, safety for this squad. Uh, Norvell Black also coming with him, teammates from Lackawanna College. They add to 11 early enrollees who arrived on campus in January. What do they have all have in common? Well, Mark, you've covered a lot of these incoming freshman classes. I'm not going to give away the number. You can share that if you'd like. But a lot of freshman classes you've seen come and develop during your time in Happy Valley. The one thing that this group does not have is a single practice to their name, regardless of the early enrollees. 27 new players are going to be uh, hypothetically heading to the field here in July into August uh, and getting that practice. But right now, uh, a lot to prove for the entire group, even if they graduated high school early and that is uncharted territory for this 2020 class. Yeah, I, I think Sean touched on something that's very important. And we talked about it with Sandy Barber last week. In Dwight Galt, you have one of the best strength coaches, if not the best strength coach in the nation. So we've seen him get guys ready to play quickly. I mean, Pat Fryer moved a couple of years ago, came in, and uh, he was a summer guy, as I recall, and ended up being, you know, their best tight end kind of right off the bat. So the infrastructure they have in place with that strength staff to me is absolutely gigantic for these kids transitioning in. I mean, this is a guy who, uh, you know, has seen it all, done it all. Obviously he's never seen a pandemic, uh, but to be able to have him to lean on uh, through this with these young guys. And, and, you know, I, I really look, um, I, I think it's important you're bringing in a couple of Juco kids because these guys have been around college practices and we know what that Lackawanna program has become. I mean, that's become, you know, one of the premier Juco programs in the nation. To, to, so to also have those two kids involved with this group, I think maybe they could serve as sort of leaders. Uh, and then you talk about the kids who came in early. I mean, I think they could also serve as kind of leaders and uh, the, this group could learn from all of those mid-year uh, enrollees. I mean, what was it, 11, 11, 12 guys? I mean, that was 11. unprecedented for Penn State, I think. And to have that many kids coming in, I think all that, that's not going to make it easy for these guys. As you said, this is definitely something we've never seen. But I think you put all these things together, and I think Penn State, you really have to look at it. They're as well-positioned, I think, as anybody to handle this sort of situation with the veteran strength staff and all the early enrollees that they had to help these kids transition. And, and it's such a challenge because you've got different uh, guys in different phases of their career. So you're working on getting guys back up to shape. You're working on building guys, getting up to shape. And we talk about the freshmen that just arrived and you've got guys that, you know, have their, their eyes set on playing right away. And w- whether it be Curtis, J- uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah. Curtis Jacobs, 
the linebacker, the five-star linebacker from, from Maryland that, you know, could factor in on special teams could also break into the field. But I look at a guy like Parker Washington from Texas. I mean, we've talked so many times about the parallels between Washington and a guy like Noah Kane, who's coming from out of state, you know, out of region even to, to come, to come play right away because the opportunity is there. And it's sort of like a business trip type mentality for Parker Washington. So um, you, you take a look at what he's able to bring to the table. You take a look at that depth chart where you've got Jahan Dotson uh, and Isaac Lutz at the slot. Well, that's a pretty good spot for him to come in and, and try to make an impact. So those are the two guys that I'm looking at. You know, Beyond that, you've got Zariah Fisher, who's coming in, going to play linebacker right away. Still not sure what his future holds, but heck of a football player regardless. Um, just all over the place, you've got guys that could come in and, and conceivably compete. Now, a lot of that's going to have to do where the roster is or with where the roster is right now. Certain positions are, of course, loaded up with numbers. Certain positions have a bunch of talent in front of them, like a linebacker. So you're really all over the board with the guys that just showed up. But, you know, there's there's a window of opportunity. And when you had the guys that came in in January, typically – you know, they've got the advantage. They've been through spring ball. They've been through all this, these months of lifting, you know, that, that advantage kind of goes away. So it's kind of a level playing field for all that 2020 class that, that has come in. Zero practices with the new coaching staff. We're talking about a new quarterbacks coach, offensive coordinator, offensive line coach, receivers coach. And really, these are the groups that are at the crux of, of whether or not the Nittany Lions can mount that college football playoff push. These are the areas of the field that we have repeatedly pointed to as if that takes a step forward collectively as a position, maybe Penn State can take a store, uh, step forward collectively as a program. And I think, you know, that spotlight's certainly going to be on that quarterback wide receiver connection. Uh, where's the trust going to come into play? We, we, we discussed uh, how often Sean Clifford seemed locked in on KJ Hamler over the course of last year. These other wide receivers looking to step up, maybe did not get as much run with him on the practice field. You mentioned a Parker Washington. We've talked a lot about Keandre Lambert, uh, another true freshman coming out of high school, arrived earlier. Those two guys have been the focus for us among the additions. You know, Norval Black, I think, is compelling because he has played two seasons of junior college football. He comes in out of position at receiver uh, this summer where it's a complete mystery box for the most part. So if he can get off to a hot start, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be able to turn Tyler Stubblefield's head, get an opportunity to play on the field. But I think um, I really have a hard time turning my attention away from Jair Brown. And maybe it's because his story was just really intriguing when he came on the podcast and talked about it a couple of years ago, uh, just considering going to a division three university, Montclair state in New Jersey ends up getting that opportunity at the Juco level becomes an all American at Lackawanna. And now he comes to Penn state with intentions to play right away. And I think, I, I just tell you what, I would not be surprised if he continues uh, to, to kind of make you wonder what happened two years ago coming out of high school and, and, and gets an opportunity to play right away. I'm not saying he's going to ascend to a starting job. You've got Trent Gordon at safety there now. There's numbers there. Jonathan Sutherland's uh, played a lot uh, behind the starting roles the last couple of years and expect that to continue. But he's someone I continue to circle uh, as a third-year player at the college level that I think – uh, it does have the goods to come in and play. I just, you know, it's safety, it's tricky. It's going to have to be a lot of it on special teams. But with a lot of this group, Sean and Mark, 
we've looked at uh, four offensive linemen coming on board here, a bunch of defensive linemen. And as is often the case, not just with Penn State, but across college football, it's difficult to break through in the trenches and, and play more than those four game allotment. I think we're looking at a lot of players in the line. We may see them early in inter- uh, you know, and out of conference action. We may see them late um, in the season to get three or four games under their belt. But if you're looking for help on the offensive or defensive front, uh, to me, I don't think it's coming by way of a first-year player in this group we're talking about. Yeah, but that's a, that's a good sign for the program. I mean, when when Penn State was coming out of the sanctions, that was one of the issues. They were forced to play a lot of really young players on on both lines. So I think if you're uh, if you're not relying on that, I think that's a sign of, of the strength of the program. I mean, really, you know, one of the other things I think we have to touch on is how much the two early enrollee receivers. The, the, the playing field was leveled by them not being able to go through spring practice by the three kids who are coming in, in late. I think it really kind of opens the door for Washington, uh, for Norvell Black, and for uh, Mega, uh, you know, to, to, ha- to have an opportunity. I think um, that's – these kids, you almost feel bad for them because they went the extra mile to graduate early, thought it was going to give them a little bit of an advantage – and now all of a sudden that advantage that they thought they had isn't going to be quite there. Now, obviously, you know, it was helpful for them to be here when they were here, and I'm sure they were in significantly more meetings, and that part of it's positive. But in terms of competing, these kids who are coming in or who came in late, now all of a sudden they're like, hey, I'm not that far behind. I have a real opportunity, and I think that that's really going to show a wide receiver because that's the one spot, as we've talked about, uh, that really is a mystery outside of one or two players. I agree. And that, that learning curve is is so steep when you get here in the summer. And you mentioned, I think Pat Fryermuth was a, a May enrollee because he, he graduated just a little bit early. So you get that, even that extra month was big for him. And I think PJ Mustaver arrived at the same time, did the same thing. But it's it's so steep. Now, basically, you, you're you looking at the advantages that a Keandre Lambert has or a Jaden Dotton. Jaden Dotton's going to redshirt. I mean, he's got got to get in there with Galt and do all that stuff. But you know, Lambert got to get in there with the boys. He got into uh, be in the locker room. He had to get, get those relationships. So when they go out, you know, we've seen them uh, out and about on like the state high field and things like that. It's easier to assimilate yourself and, and get into that uh, that mix as a guy that's been on campus. So I think that, you know, if you're looking for a silver lining, you, you've got relationships started with some of these older players and perhaps with Sean Clifford and build up that rapport and everything. But I mean, that... It, it sucks. I mean, that's what kind of what we're grabbing at straws when we're talking about what kind of advantage these guys have. So I still expect Keandre, Keandre Lambert to have an impact on this. I think he is talented enough to break in and, and potentially, you know, eventually be a starter on this team, uh, this this 2020 team. But I mean, it's uh, it kind of, you know, you're just kind of going in the other direction when you're talking about the advantages that, that these guys had as January enrollees. And you know, uh, you're, you're right about the roster. I think I think uh, for the most part at, at spots, the offensive line, on the defensive line, linebacker, running back, tight end, you know, you don't need these guys to come in and play right away. But then at a spot where you do at wide receiver, I mean, all of a sudden it's kind of flipped on its head. The two names that stick out to me among the early enrollees, and I think on a lot of campuses across the country, they would be getting a lot of chatter right now as guys who are going to step in, play, maybe compete for starting roles. We're not having that conversation at Penn State. Uh, Theo Johnson at tight end and Keziah Holmes at running back. Now, Theo has a little bit of a question mark coming off of a shoulder injury he suffered at an All-American event last winter. Franklin told us would not have been a full participant in spring practice, but he's had some time now. Um, you know, he, he would seem to be 
behind Brendan Strange, Zach Koontz in the pecking order to, to even be the next man up behind Pat Fryermuth. We've talked a lot about what's going on at running back with Devin Ford uh, and, and Noah Kane and Journey Brown ahead of Keziah Holmes. But, um, you know, those two to me, they're a bit of wild cards because I feel like if they impress the coaches, it, it may be hard to to keep them within that four game restraint because you're trying to do everything you can to compete with the program like Ohio State. And, and maybe get through this regular season unbeaten, which seems like you would probably have to do to have a real shot at the playoffs. And, I, you know, if those guys prove to be potential weapons at your disposal, how do you steer clear of them, even if you would love to retain that year of eligibility? Yeah, I think, you know, Theo Johnson is the guy to me who you look at in uh, physically, you know, we had a chance to see him um, at the, uh, what was it? Uh, one of the events at, at Lash Building. Oh, it was a Thon thing. I was uh, yep. losing my mind here. Uh, and just to see the size of that kid uh, physically, it's like, wow, he's he's an impressive kid. So if he is healthy, uh, I could see him being a guy who's able to make some headway. And that's another kind of cool thing you're seeing about the development of the program, uh, you know, recruiting wise. You know, now all of a sudden there are guys who are in, you know, redshirt freshmen, redshirt sophomores uh, who are really – you know, I don't want to say it's do or die time, but there's so much competition at places like tight end and running back that if if they don't produce, I mean, there are some young guns here who are ready to come in and, and really you could get bumped to the side. Yeah. And Ricky Slade was a guy who's a true sophomore last year as a starter off in, in game one. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's he's at Old Dominion now. The guys that I'm looking to. Uh, you know, clearly weren't ready to play, you know, just as they got in, they were the the raw guys, but Bryce Mostella and Fatorma Malba, the guys that, you know, probably needed more than anyone else in this class to get from where they're at to where they could be. And I still think both of them have, you know, pretty high ceilings as defensive linemen. Now you take him out of that element, you, you, you send them back home. Uh, you know, it's not the same uh, the, in terms of strength training, in terms of anything, really, it's not the same, but then, you know, you bring them back. So you hope that those guys didn't learn or lose too much. We heard some good things about what, what Mostella was able to do in the short time he was on campus. And again, these are guys that are a couple of years away from playing, but uh, any, any stunting to that growth is, is probably going to hurt them in the long run. So, I'm excited to see, you know, guys like that back on campus that can can eventually make a difference that, you know, maybe want to keep keep up where they're, you know, keep that progress to where they were going. Yeah, Mostel is another guy at that Thon event that you looked at and you were like, whoa. I mean, he they have him listed at 6'6", I think it's 6'6", 241 on the Penn State roster. And yeah, and I'm telling you, he's every bit of 6'6", if not even taller. And at 241, he looks skinny. So uh, adding to what you're saying, Sean, I think he's he's a guy with upside. But, you know, to me, he's a guy who could end up at maybe 265 or something like that if he gets that big. He's he's so long at this point that if he's able to carry that weight. So another guy who passes the eyeball test. Yeah, you look at a guy like that and you think a guy like Carl Nassib, when he got here, he was tremendously skinny, but yeah. he could hold 270 pounds. You know, he this is a guy, Mostella is going to be. 260, 265 by the end of his redshirt freshman year. So, um, you know, you've got an opportunity to sort of build these guys up and they're different types of, of body types on that defensive line. And we know we saw his film. I mean, there, there's a long, long way to go when he gets on that field. But athletically framed, you know, you check a bunch of those boxes and then all of a sudden you've got some some things working for you. Bryce you must get him in the media room, too. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, I, I can't wait to see the look on some of our colleagues' faces when he starts answering questions in Bryce Mostella fashion. And Because if they didn't listen to the podcast, they're really not going to know what's coming. Um, and he was a great interview on this podcast. He told us when he came into high school, he was six foot five, 170 pounds. He labeled himself horribly skinny. Uh, and then over about the last year or so, when, when the focus really became getting ready for the Power 5 Leap, he was eating up to six burritos of superfoods a day as part of his caloric intake. Those were just, you know, you know, your standard snacks over the course of the day, these homemade burritos from his mom. So kid has been put in the work. One final point as, as we put a bow on the arrival of, of these freshmen and, and the couple junior college guys, and it kind of ties into the larger point about this program, you know, looking at reentry to the practice field later this month. Rapport. We, we mentioned that word with Sean Clifford and the receiving group and how much that's going to factor into the development of this offense. How about across the board? These guys still are not you know, gathering in large groups. They're, they're often relegated to who they live with, uh, who they're working with in the position room for these small structured workouts. And you know, it's, it's by design that these guys are kind of avoiding each other in, in big groups. At what point, um, you know, do, you know, this is a team that we looked at. Penn State as saying chemistry was going to be an advantage for them because of the returning players, the returning star power. These guys have grown up together in a lot of cases the last three, four years. Where does that stand now, and, and how do you cultivate the situation where you can enter the season and knowing that if your back is turned on the field, you can trust the guy who's covering the spot behind you? I, you know, these are the kind of things that that I think almost are going to need to be relearned on a lot of campuses, and you know, Penn State's probably not immune to that. Yeah, as we know, that that, that first year for, uh, for true freshmen can be tough. I remember Kajana Carter telling the story of how, uh, you know, uh, a month or two into his freshman year, he wanted to leave and they ended up redshirting Kajana Carter. If you could believe that, that's how loaded that team was back in the early nineties. And that's the one thing you really hope that with, with this group that somehow, and maybe it's different now with social media, or maybe it's different now with the ability to, to, to zoom and, and do that sort of thing you would hope, because I think that's one of the really key things when they're coming in as a group to be able to lean on one another because not everybody's going to have the opportunity to play. And these guys were all high school stars, all JUCO stars. To be able to lean on one another if you're not playing, I think the, the, the point you bring up, Tyler, is a great one. That chemistry is going to be huge, especially for this rookie class. Yeah, and, the, and you've got guys that we've seen come in that uh, clearly have expected to play, and then you pull that back, and all of a sudden you talk to them in January. You know, we get the, the kids at the – we got the guys at the Cotton Bowl, and we, we focused on a lot of those younger guys. It's like – man, I needed that redshirt year. And and that's a big mental hurdle for those guys to clear. And we'll see if that that continues because there's so many things going on right now that you you don't know where a lot of these guys' heads are at when they come into it. And, you know, it's going it, to it's gonna be very different in three months. So it's, uh, it, it, it's a fascinating look at, at how these guys can handle that. And, and you mentioned with social media and Zoom, it, it might be easier to stay in touch with those people back at home. But on the flip side, with social media, these kids come in fairly inflated when when they talk about the expectations that they have. And I, I think that's probably being a little bit kind. Um, so that's why you do see a lot of these guys moving out after one year and, and, and trying to move on and find something else. So I think that that's something else you take into account. And, and when you can't have contact with your players, when you can't have 
all these different things that you're used to as a normal uh, adjustment period for some of these guys. And that's going to change some things. So it'd be really interesting to see. It'd be really interesting to see uh, getting off topic here in the class of 2021, how, how heavily they skew to the portal, you know, in, in a couple of years from now because of what they're going through. So there's just so many things going on right now and so many X facts. And I don't think there's a, you know, probably a right answer to, to how to approach this and what to expect in the, in the coming years because of this. That's a great point. And, and because this group, even though they have this strange scattered arrival to campus as a 2020 class, they've done the lash bash together. They've, they've gone to the blue white game together. They've gone to the whiteout game against Michigan together. They've had those experiences. And we're talking about a 2021 class that, you know, it, what is it all but two of these guys came on board since the shutdown. So how much can they really, uh, you know, carve out from those relationships and, and, you know, those shared experiences that do kind of create early bonds and something to look for in the next recruiting class. Uh, that's going to do it for the conversation here for the 2020 group. Uh, catch out, our, catch all of our content with uh, early impressions from this freshman class and expectations online 247.com. Um, shifting focus here in, in a pretty severe way uh, over to Penn State basketball. And this was a big part of the reason. Uh, don't need an excuse to get Mark on, but this was a big part of the reason we wanted to get Mark on. Mark, last time you were on the show, you were on your way to Indianapolis for the start of the Big Ten basketball tournament. A lot has changed since then uh, across the globe and certainly here in college athletics. We're not talking about on-court stuff, though. This is a Penn State program that was on the verge of breaking through, getting into March Madness for the first time in, in a decade. And now here we are in the middle of the summer talking about words that ma- uh, a word that Pat Chambers uh, applied to a conversation with Rasir Bolton during his freshman year. Bolton opening up uh, about his transfer and, and what led to it. Um, with the undefeated on Monday, it's an article that got a lot of attention. Um, and and really quickly, the the this is what we were told uh, through this article uh, that according to the story on the undefeated, uh, Bolton during struggles during that freshman year, Pat Chambers met with him, and this is the quote: uh, "quote I want to be a stress reliever for you. You can talk to me about anything. I need to get some of this pressure off you. I want to loosen the noose that's around your neck." Now, in this story from the undefeated, Chambers said he did not realize the word noose would impact Bolton the way it did. Um, he says, you know, he issued an apology there and then he came out uh, um, uh, coinciding with a statement from Sandy Barber on Monday, um, realizing, he says, I realized the pain my words and ignorance caused Rasir Bolton and his family. I apologize. Uh, and he went on to, to you know, call it unacceptable and, and basically say that he needs to to look inside and, and, and figure out, you know, how to avoid insensitive and hurtful remarks. Um, Mark, I want to go to you on this because you're at every Pat Chambers media availability coming off of of one of the more exciting Nittany Lions basketball seasons in recent memory. And, and this pops up in a time for our country where conversations like this that are uncomfortable and maybe the person who says certain things doesn't recognize it at the time and then they're kind of asked to look through a different lens. What's your take on this? Well, clearly what Pat Chambers said was was wrong. I mean, he, he chose the wrong wording. There's absolutely no, no doubt about it. And the fact that he's owned it, I think that's very important. And I think the fact that Penn State, uh, Sandy Barber has come out and said, listen, we're going to lo- use this as a learning experience, not only for Pat Chambers, but for the athletic department and the university as a whole. I think both of those things are very important. 
you know, one player in this program, and I, and I said this even before any of this broke, uh, that I've had as much respect for as anybody who I've covered, you know, dating back to the late 1980s, uh, is Lamar Stevens. Always been up front, always been truthful, met the media after wins, after losses. And, you know, for almost a year and a half, he was the one guy, you know, when they were at the depths of that season that they were going through, Lamar, C- Lamar Stevens was the one guy who was coming out all the time to represent the program. So I think the fact that he rallied to Pat's defense, uh, not saying what Pat said was right, he was saying 100% that was the wrong thing to say. But I think when you listen to what a Lamar Stevens has to say, that resonates. Does that mean what Rashir Bolton had to say is wrong? Absolutely not. I mean, uh, Pat Chambers said, frame that in the absolute wrong way. I think any reasonable person could look at what, at what he was attempting to say and say, oh, well, you, you have too much pressure on you. We're trying to take some pressure off of you. But you can't, Pat had to know better than to use that word. There's just no other way about it. And, you know, as a, as a uh, 56-year-old white guy, I can't pretend to know how that impacts a young person of color and his family. So that, that, that stuff is completely understandable. But I, I'll go back to when I hear Lamar Stevens saying, listen, what coach said was wrong, but overall he's a good person. I take Lamar Stevens at his word. And, you know, to me, he's the guy who was kind of the voice of reason to me uh, through this whole thing. Not that other people weren't the, the voice of reason. And, and I have to say, you know, I had heard that this, this piece was coming and I was wondering how it was going to be framed. And I thought the writer did a good job with it. I think the point that he was making is that too many times these white coaches don't have their finger on the pulse of what may uh, impact people of color in certain ways. And that it was basically something everybody ought to learn from. So I think it was a fair piece. I don't think it was a hit piece at all. And I think Pat handled it the right way. And I think the athletic department's handling it the right way. Where does it go from here? You know, I think the one thing that everybody's probably wondering, how does this impact them recruiting? Well, I think from Penn State's perspective, uh, they're really not in, even though they lost a big guy, uh, they're not in position to bring anybody else in unless they were t- to take a real stretch on a, on a grad transfer uh, at this point for the upcoming class. So I think over the next few months until the early signing period, that's what we're going to see. And I think Pat's going to have to answer a lot of questions to a lot of parents, to a lot of recruits, uh, to a lot of people. But I think the fact that he has his current players seem to be behind him, I think that's a positive for him. Now, now Stevens indicated that this was a bad phrase used in a metaphor that, that wasn't appropriately applied. He said a poor choice of words, uh, and Stevens went on to call Coach – he said, Coach Chambers is a great man who made a mistake. His actions toward all of his current and past players – speak more, speak much more volume, ask them. So, you know, you certainly wonder if, if more Penn State players and, and probably have already happened on Twitter have, have come to the defense or, or weighed in on this subject. Um, but, you know, I guess the, the, at the end of the day, the, the, what, what Stevens is, is implying here is that uh, weight on the shoulders would have been a better phrase to use than a noose around the neck, certainly uh, with a young African-American man. Um, and, and, and really anybody, I, I suppose. I mean, do you think that, that I guess, situations like this and, and, and talking about them in college athletics, and we've seen program after program uh, now, you know, seeing some friction between players or former players and coaches and how they've handled circumstances, um, you know, 
does this change anything uh, from a fundamental standpoint for for how Penn State, you know, coaches are, are going to interact with their players and what Sandy Barber is going to anticipate from coaches? And and do you think that it, it's worrisome for a lot of coaches who maybe wonder, did I slip up two three years ago and say something that could have been taken one way? where you know, that was not the, the, the target intent. Well, I think you would hope that everybody would learn from it, right? I yeah. mean, anybody in a position of authority, just like with everything that's going on in the world today, you would hope that people aren't just looking at it and you know being mad. You would hope that, they, hey, let's everybody kind of learn something. And again, I'll go back to the fact that you know Chambers didn't duck the interview. He spoke at length with the writer. He put out a lengthy apology. Um, you know, the one thing that I think is, that the one thing I'm not clear on is it sounds as if the Boltons are suggesting that Chambers didn't um, apologize at the time, uh, where Jamari Wheeler is saying that he did apologize uh, in in person and then to the entire team. So I think that's the one sort of uh, gray area that we're we're not sure about. And I'm, you know, who are you supposed to believe at this point? But the, the fact that even if it is a, a, a year later or however long later, step up and apologize. He could have ducked the interview. He could have said no comment. He could have put out – they could have put out a um, – just, a, you know, a short statement, and they didn't do that. So I think you have to give them some credit. You have to criticize them for what he said at the time. There's no other way of putting that. But once you make the mistake – then how do you react to it? And I think that's the most important p- point. And to, to going to your question, you hope that not only does Pat Chambers learn from this, but that everybody in a position of authority who's paying attention, you would hope that they learn from it as well. Bolton, by the way, a very successful uh, season last year at Iowa State, started all 30 games with the Cyclones, uh, moving on to the next phase of his career. Sean, didn't mean to elbow you out of the conversation, but this is something that that is, uh, you know, in, in injecting itself more into sports conversations day by day because of uh, how we are handling things socially, culturally, and and often when we talk about uh, head coaches with a lot of power and making a lot of money and their players, there often is that you know dichotomy of backgrounds and and you know an, an older white guy and a, and a younger black man, um, and and just you know curious you you have covered. Penn State basketball cover, Penn State football. Um, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but I, I didn't want to box you out of that conversation. No, it's it's fine. That's why we brought Mark on anyway. So um, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's more to me uh, about a pattern of behavior more so than an incident. I mean, you know, we've covered Pat Chambers and followed Pat Chambers for a while. And obviously not everything gets under the record, but he doesn't really have a, you know, a history of, of things like this. Um, you basically put his foot in his mouth. I mean, that's, that's where we're at with this. What I see is, um, you know, just a, an unfortunate situation, an inexcusable situation, no doubt about it. But what I like to see, and, and I know people will disagree with this, student athletes have become more empowered to come out and, and say things. We saw what happened in Oklahoma State. We've seen places across the country where they have come out and said, hey, this is not okay, and we're not going to deal with it. And I think that's a very positive step um, for empowering these players, the the unpaid players against the millionaire coaches, and I th- I think that's a good step forward. And you know, credit to to the Boltons, and I know that that's you know it, it's been a 
a situation where Bolton transferred, you know, is eligible right away. I have to believe, you know, this was not the first time that this has these these whispers have come up that that had something to do with him being an el- or eligible right away. So, you know, that's something that goes into it. Now this story breaks. The timing's not a surprise based on what's going on all over the country right now. So, uh, and I have no problem with that. I mean, this is it's it, to me it's best to air this all out. I mean, you you want to show people who people actually are, not that that is, not that this is a case of who Pat Chambers actually is. Um, but I think across the country, it's a trend that we've seen. I think it's a positive one for, you know, getting people to the same level. If we're going to talk about equality, if we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff, getting people to have that voice and have that uh, sort of, uh, you know, way to frame things and, and I guess change the, change the narrative for all that. I think that's a positive step. You, you know, sometimes you hear comfort is the, the, you know, the enemy of progress and a lot of people feeling uncomfortable and, you know, whether it's inward, inward thoughts or, or whether it's something like this, where, where people are kind of being called on things they may have said or actions they may have taken. And at the time didn't think twice about it. Now thinking long and hard about that. And in some cases, such as the case of a, a, a college leader like Pat Chambers, that occurs in the public spotlight as we saw take place on Monday. Uh, we have coverage of that up online at 247.com. Wanted to, to make sure we hit on that a bit, particularly with Mark. Mark, any final thoughts before we uh, hit, head to commercial break and then jump back into some football conversation? I just think Sean made a good point that, you know, listen, it, it at the end of the day, maybe it's better or it is better that 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 this whole thing comes out rather there than there be whispers and whatever kind of behind the scenes. You know what? Pat said it. He admitted that he said it, let him address it. And he has addressed it. And I think long-term for better or worse, I, for better or worse for him and in, in, in the immediate uh, program, I think for the big picture overall, I think it's better that he and Penn state were able to address this. And and, and and the way that they addressed it, I think they, I, I, you know, for my my opinion is they addressed it in a positive way. And, and one more thing to tie it back to Penn State and everybody, most people are listening for Penn State football. James Franklin's great to elite speech for for whatever we want to do, whatever we want to parse it and and say what it did or what it didn't do. You know, one one thing that I've ke- I've kept going back to over the last couple of months or the last month or so is. When you're uncomfortable, that's when change happens. When you're uncomfortable, that's when you can go from great to elite. And that's something we've seen um, in this situation, in situations over the last month. There's a lot of uncomfortable people. I mean, we're three white guys on a podcast talking about things, and we're clearly uncomfortable with with a lot of this stuff. So when that happens, that change can happen. And I think that's a, that's a positive thing. So I always like to tie it. You know, it always comes back to the great to elite speech, obviously, because that's, that's where we're at and that's where, uh, that's where we're going. We'll get we'll get back in our in our comfort zone coming off the commercial break. We'll talk about the Big Ten Network's all decade team that they put out over the course of a few days. Some four former Penn State players were on that list. Uh, and then 24-7 Sports Big Ten Media Poll. Where does Penn State land? What are the expectations for the conference here in 2020? And we'll get to our five-star mailbag all right around the corner here in the Lions 24-7 podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, last Monday, the Big Ten Network began their reveal of the all-decade team for Big Ten football players. So we're talking 2010 through 2019, the best of the best at every position. The first name they actually brought up as they broke down this team was a Penn State Nittany Lion, Saquon Barkley, along with Jonathan Taylor, the first team running back picks uh, on the all-Big Ten squad. Uh, second team in that group, Ezekiel Elliott, Melvin Gordon. It's That's a, 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 quite a decision and quite a discussion to have when you talk about Big Ten running backs from that 10-year period. Uh, but no surprise to see Barkley on that list. Allen Robinson, also a first-team selection at wide receiver. And then a couple second-team selections out of the Nittany Lions. Uh, Stefan Wisniewski, he is an offensive lineman on the second team. And then a linebacker, Michael Mowdy, a second-team pick as well, earlier part of the decade. Uh, and then Saquon Barkley coming toward latter stages. And, and Allen Robinson somewhere in the middle. So, guys, uh, four names there. Uh, I don't think a, a couple there are, are surprising at all with Barkley and Robinson. Uh, but in your opinion, you co- you both covered the entire decade of Penn State football. A- any surprise on who did make the list before we talk about who did not make the list? No, not at all. I mean, Saquon Barkley and Allen Robinson, are you kidding me? I mean, they, they, they certainly believe, uh, belong on there. I mean, you look at what was their actually receiver. I mean, Allen Robinson was fantastic receiver, great receiver. So you kind of got to look at what he was up against. And for him to come out on top of that, uh, you know, it says something. I'm still looking. I, I thought the BTN did not do a great job of dispersing this. So I'm they did not do a good job with the second team at all. No, uh, I'm, 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 I'm had still to looking hunt for a lot of it. Yeah, still looking for a lot there. So I'm not sure what uh, what the deal is. But Stefan Wisniewski and Michael Mati on there, of course. Uh, you know, great to have those those guys both on there. Wisniewski maybe a little bit underrated. You know, in terms of what he was able to do, uh, his versatility, his ability to uh, to play you know different positions and then have a long pro career, win a couple of rings. I mean, I think it's. Uh, it's a hat tip for him. Always like to have Madi on there. I mean, as underrated as as Wisniewski was, I mean, Madi didn't play a ton of football because he kept hurting his knee. So it was interesting to see him on there. I think maybe uh, just his, uh, you know, his, his status as what he was for that team when he was it helped him along there. But uh, it was it was awesome to see him. Uh, they did him dirty with that uh, with that review, though. He had the uh, <laughs> interception return against Illinois that, that went down to the one-yard line. Um, but you know, At halftime, right? At, has, at halftime. They brutal. did not get any points out of that. And that's something that still, I know, weighs on his mind. I, t- I text Mike from time to time. And that's something that still comes up in the conversations. But uh, no, it's, uh, it's cool to see those guys on there. Uh, we got a couple gripes, I'm sure. I, I know there was a couple spots that we uh, thought some guys could probably Probably uh, have have made some headway. I looked at tight end, um, and you saw Jake Butt was number one. Uh, I believe it was one of the Iowa tight ends, and I was going to say Noah Fant, but it wasn't Fant. It was the other guy, um, that, Hawkinson. That was, Hawkinson, that was in there. Um, so my, no, Mike Kosicki. And once again, I, I, did we miss something with Mike Kosicki? We saw last week when uh, Sporting News said they haven't had an elite tight end. I, I don't know. I don't know. Were, were we missing something? I mean, you, he, got, you guys know I wasn't missing it. I was paying very close attention to to South Jersey's finest. But yeah, it seems like people. 
kind of, I don't know, this, you know, kind of had a hell of a two-year run there at the very least. Yeah, and Jake Butt was was really good at Michigan and Hawkinson and Fant. Those guys were really good at, at Iowa, understandably. But uh, I thought Mike Kosicki in terms of uh, playmaking ability as a tight end and a uh, second-round pick is, is pretty good. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how you could have fit him on, but to me, when I look at the most impactful players for Penn State of the last decade, you know, Trace McSorley and what he was able to do, you know, it's almost like when you're looking at who made the NCAA tournament and, and who didn't. It's like, well, you can't take – you can't add somebody without taking somebody out. But I, I just think whether he belongs on this team or not, what Trace McSorley did for this program at, at a very key time, you know, coming in uh, as a late flip from Vanderbilt, uh, everybody wanted him as a safety, only ends up being the best quarterback, in my view, in Penn State history, and, you know, had Penn State in, in position to win all but a handful of games – uh, I I look at that and I'm like, wow. I mean, if, if I were voting, this is one of those things where I would have snuck him up there. And Sean, to go to your point about uh, Mike Mowdy, um, if he had not been injured, I think he would have been a no-brainer first team. And this speaks so much to the respect that everybody had for him. Uh, but other than that, I mean, those are really two guys that I look at. Uh, you know, McSorley, I, I can't say enough about how, you know, I hope we appreciate what we witnessed from him over those over those uh, three years in one game or whatever it was, because I think he was something special. So he's one name that I would definitely throw out there. I don't know who I would take off, but I, I think he was tremendous. Who were the quarterbacks? I missed it. Uh, that was Braxton Miller and JT Barrett. So, I mean, you've got a couple of guys, I think, that won two Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year awards. Tough to, tough to argue a lot of Ohio State in this. I mean, they well, had eight selections, so... Yeah. And Miller was uh, actually an all-purpose uh, pick as a first-teamer. It's Miller and, and Jabril Peppers were all-purpose selections. Uh, of course, Miller ended up at wide receiver, I think, his, his last year with the Buckeyes and the quarterback development they had behind him when he was injured. But, yeah, Barrett was the first-team guy. Um, I recall, you know, another Ohio State guy got some votes there, Dwayne Haskins. And, you know, how, how much do you, you know, put stock in one huge year for him versus, you know, three years on the field for, for a guy like McSorley? Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the Penn State record books reflect it. And I think when folks look back at the resurgence of this program, you know, Saquon Barkley, because of what we expect him to continue accomplishing in the NFL – always going to be the probably the first name people go to but I, I think McSorley you know you 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 cast him aside in that conversation at your own peril because uh, he was you know uh, everything that, that you would hope for from a team leader at the quarterback spot um, and then the production followed there and and by the way if you were looking at wide receiver Sean I couldn't tell if that's what you were trying to find and, and who was measured up there Tyler Johnson was the other first team pick at wide receiver Penn State fans uh, saw enough of him last uh, November in person, and and he was the the other first team guy uh, a, along with Allen Robinson, who two time Big Ten Receiver of the Year in, in 2012 and 2013. Yeah, and it's funny because you talk about uh, so many Ohio State guys on there, and Zeke Elliott didn't make it, and that's that's crazy. I mean, I know Jonathan Taylor had a fantastic career, and Barkley is Barkley, but Zeke Elliott was a big reason that they did what they did at that point. The one gripe that I had just when I took a look at numbers and I took a look at uh, impact and, and obviously this is a one-year wonder type thing, but Carl Nassib uh, was a national player of the year, defensive player of the year in, in, in 2015. And it really 
for for him to be left off of that is kind of crazy. But then I looked at the defensive line, and it's Joey Bosa, Chase Young, Ryan Kerrigan, and JJ Watt. So I, you know, I can see that. So I'm I'm not uh, not really offended by the snub. Now, what's interesting to me is if you look at the one they did on Watt, he was a 2010 second team All-American. So maybe really didn't have the college impact and the college uh, accolades that that NASA put together in that one season in that one season. So I thought that was interesting. uh, Just and, and, and again, this is the guy I was looking at with the second team, and I didn't see a second team defensive line. And there have been some tremendous defensive linemen in the Big Ten over the last 10 years. But uh, Carlson Nassib, I think, could have made an argument based on that one season. Now, Micah Parsons, uh, I saw a producer tweeting out some, you know, kind of uh, how they uh, gathered the votes and, and, you know, some interesting things that stood out of that. Micah Parsons did pick up some votes at, at linebacker. I guess he was among the others receiving votes. And you wonder, you know, how does he, I mean, how does he fit in then? Because he's coming at the tail end of this decade. He's got presumably one more year at the start of another decade. And I guess one year was enough for, for a guy like Wisniewski to to make the second team all decade squad next year. But uh, it, they got, there's going to have to be some room for Parsons, I guess, in the discussion uh, if he goes out and has the kind of 2020 season we expect. And kind of same goes for Pat Fryermuth, the guy who already tied the Penn State program record, Gesicki's record for tight end touchdowns in, in just two seasons. No, he's probably only got one year to play in this next next decade. So just just some interesting stuff. These guys who are kind of on the you know, tail end of one decade going into another. They'll be remembered fondly by Penn State fans. We'll see how they'll be viewed uh, in the Big Ten spotlight. And I think the goal for Penn State fans and certainly for James Franklin uh, guys is to, to put more than four guys on the next decade list, right? I mean, considering what this program and, and it's been well documented, how far things have come, in shorter period of time than many expected for Penn State. Do you both feel it's a safe bet that there will be more than four Penn State players on the next edition of this when we wrap up the decade that we're just starting now? Yeah, I mean, I think it says something that um, they did what they did in the last decade, winning a Big Ten championship, uh, going to all those New Year's Six Bowl games with only two guys on the first team. And as for Micah Parsons and Pat Fryermuth, are they could, if they really want to be on the 2020 All-Decade team, they could both stay two more years, right? They both <laughs> yeah. have every opportunity to stay and pad their stats for two more years. If their goal is to be on that 2020 All-Decade team, you know, have at it for a couple more years, fellas. And Sorry, I'll, I'll just go in. I mean, you, you've got Wisniewski, Mahdi, Robinson, all actually pre-Franklin. But to think of where the team is now, you know, as a whole compared to where they you know, to where they were when they had more individual uh, accolades and talent and these guys like this. I mean, it says something about how far they've come in the last couple of years. I got a recap of the all-decade team up on lines247.com, along with the entire first team laid out. Again, apologies for the second team. I would have included that in the article, but like Sean referenced, just did not do a good job of making that a readily available information for us. But uh, um, by the way, coach of the decade, uh, won't surprise really anybody, uh, Urban Meyer, out of the Big Ten um, was was selected for that role. From the Big Ten's past to what we've got in front of us here in 2020 and what we're hoping to see on fields across the, the conference this fall, um, the Big Ten media poll is out for 24-7 sports. Uh, they have been conducting these for all the Power Five conferences, uh, going to be publishing them over the course of this week. And, and Tuesday, the Big Ten one drops. Uh, I was part of this. I'm not sure if you guys were. Um, but Ohio State is the unanimous pick to win the Big Ten East. 
followed by, in order, Penn State, Michigan, Indiana, Michigan State, Maryland, and Rutgers rounding out the Big Ten East. Let's start there. Not really, you know, this is ex- status quo, right? I mean, going into the season, it's it's Ohio State and everybody else in, in the Big Ten. Wisconsin's getting some love. They were picked to win the, the Big Ten East or West, although Minnesota did take two first-place votes. But Ohio State, it, it, this says it all for kind of the perception. They're the unanimous pick to win this side of the conference, and they're the unanimous pick to win the Big Ten title, which would mark their fourth consecutive conference championship. No question about it. I mean, this is uh, this is Ohio State's conference until somebody takes it from them, and it looks like Penn State would be the one that would have to take it from them, and it, it's really not a surprise. I mean, you look at what what the voting said, and I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, you, you, you're going to lay this out, Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Indiana could – you know, could conceivably move up a little bit because they're a pretty good team. Michigan State, Maryland, Rutgers, clearly that that lower tier. So I don't think there's any question about it, really. Yeah, and I think if you look at some of the uh, the sites that offer future futures <laughs> betting, you know, that's, you know, p- people could guess this stuff all they want. We could guess it. But the bookies are the ones who really have skin in the game. And, you know, clearly they have Ohio State as the – overwhelming favorite to win the conference. But I think it's also interesting that if you look at national title odds, uh, Penn State is second in the Big Ten behind Ohio State. And then there's kind of a, depending on who you look at, uh, a a lump of teams with uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and then maybe Iowa. But yeah, to to be the best, you got to beat the best. It's a cliche, uh, but it's true. The good news for Penn State, they're going to have every opportunity to do that if the season plays out the way we think it will uh, by playing Ohio State here. Now, probably not going to be a, a full stadium whiteout. You know, who knows what's going to happen. But I think getting that game at home will be a benefit uh, if the season plays out. Quarterback Justin Fields from the Buckeyes is the player of the year pick in this Big Ten media poll. Uh, all but one of the votes for that went to him. The other goes to Rondell Moore, who uh, lost a lot of his sophomore season, a guy that we thought we'd see in, in Beaver Stadium last year, but injury kept him out of that one and, and plenty more games. He was sensational back in 2018 as a true freshman. Um, so Purdue, he, he gets one pick there, but Justin Fields is, is the guy who gets all the rest and that kind of, you know, again, plays up the, the fact that can Sean Clifford take enough steps forward here under Kirk Shiraka where you can counter that with, with your own quarterback punch uh, at, at Penn State to, to a guy who can elevate the program, a guy uh, you know who, who can help you take that next step and by getting the ball to your playmakers. And we know Penn State has, has assembled quite, quite a lot of them, and that's you know going to be the big question this year for Penn State, and, and it seems to be a big uh, confirming factor for Ohio State. When folks look at the Buckeyes, they see a potential Heisman Trophy winner in Justin Fields. They see a potential number one NFL draft pick when they look at Justin Fields. And I think that gives a lot of people the reassurance in saying, look, Ohio State lost some considerable talent to the NFL last year. And, uh, you know, they've got more to prove in year two of Ryan Day, Day's tenure, but they still got Fields back at quarterback. And then that's a tremendous starting point where you hear people talk about Clifford back at Penn State. And that's a steadiness factor. It's a consistency factor. But people aren't hanging their hat on saying that's a championship uh, caliber uh, kind of component for Penn State at this point, and, and they have that in Justin Fields. Big Ten game of the year, fellas, uh, was selected as Ohio State at Penn State. No surprise there. 
I've talked about this before, uh, Michigan, Ohio State, every year it's, it's, it's going to be in the spotlight for different reasons, but it seems like this is the one that determines not only who goes to Indianapolis, but who's going to be the favorite in that Big Ten championship game on an annual basis. Um, so the, the top storyline, when they broke it down and, and, and what we kind of weighed in, we were asked for our top storylines. The one that kept coming up was Penn State versus Ohio State, it seems, to get that college football playoff berth out of the Big Ten. And the point I made is, is there going to be room? Can there be room for two teams out of the Big Ten conference? Uh, let's say if, if an Ohio State or a Penn State, the only loss they suffer over the course of the season is against the other uh, one. And, and so you've got an unbeaten and you've got an, a one loss, whether it's Ohio State or Penn State, they're not going to go to Indianapolis because they're getting shut out by, by that loss. Will they, with a one loss, let's say it's a close game, I think the question for me is, is the committee seriously going to consider uh, a one-loss Penn State or a one-loss Ohio State, and and which of those might look better? You figure that means Ohio State beat Oregon, Ohio State went to Penn State, lost on the road. I don't know. It just just feels like Penn State loses that game against Ohio State. It's going to be really hard for them to make the case, even with that maybe the best loss in the country to be able to, to break through. And, and that's a, really a tough hurdle to put in front of this roster and this, in this coaching staff. And, and I don't think they're going to get the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it, it, you flip it on its head and say, Ohio state loses at Penn state. All of a sudden a one loss Ohio state, you know, ha- probably has a better argument to get in than a one loss Penn state team would. So I think that if you look at it like that, Ohio state's going to get the benefit of the doubt based on what they've done over the last several years Penn state's probably not. So, you know, that's, that's basically what it's going to come down to. And it's, you know, it, it seems like a very, now I, we probably say this every year, but it seems like a very predictable year in the big 10 in terms of what's out there fields, the player of the year pick for all but one person. It sounds like the one person just wanted to, to be different, I guess, and pick Rondale Moore. game of the year is pretty obvious. Top storylines are pretty obvious. The West is, you know, a little bit more flat, uh, no pun intended, didn't mean that, but uh, the West is a little bit more flat when you talk about um, the top to bottom. And then in the East, you've got the the big time uh, programs at the top and then very far down at the bottom. Uh, there's a big gap in there. So you kind of, ex- you know what to expect coming out of the Big Ten this year. So none of these results overly surprising, should be overly surprising to anybody. Yeah, one point I would make is that if Penn State loses to Ohio State, you look at the rest of the schedule and it's not as if there are a lot of quality, you know, big time wins, especially toward the end of the season. And we all know how that's kind of a silly season where everybody's, you know, you have the weekly rating show and everything else. Well, what's it going to look like if Penn State has one loss, albeit to Ohio State at home, and you're ending the season with Michigan State, uh, Maryland, and and Rutgers? Um, that, that That's a tough way. No, Now that's to win games, that's good. But that's not a good way to build your to, to further build your resume. So that could actually come into play. You know, you're not going to be in a Big Ten title game, and you're ending your regular season uh, with the three three of the weaker teams in the conference. Here's what Penn State has on their schedule after that matchup at home, October 24th against the Buckeyes. They travel to Indiana. I know Sean, you've talked about that before. That Halloween matchup in Bloomington. That, that, that one that looks very dangerous, and Indiana's been tough on Penn State lately. Then you go to Nebraska. Your guess is as good as mine. The Corneskers, do they take a huge leap this year? Do they, do they just kind of sputter along and make you wonder about the Frost era? That, that's, a, that's a major question mark. Penn State then comes home for Michigan State and Maryland, and then they finish off at Rutgers Thanksgiving weekend. That, that final three 
you like. But like you said, Mark, you're not going to get a lot of style points out of that back back portion of the schedule, those last three in particular. Ohio State, after they play Penn State, they also host Nebraska. That's a Halloween game. They host Indiana. They travel to Maryland. They travel to Illinois. Not a lot there. And, of course, though, they finish up at home against Michigan, and we'll see what Jim Harbaugh's uh, squad looks like this time around, yet to uh, yet to beat the Buckeyes on any field since he took over. So you know, I, I think you look at the out-of-conference, and that's the, that's the question mark right now. Are we going to get a full 2020 schedule, and uh, how is that out-of-conference going to look? Right now, you know, a trip, a uh, trip to Oregon, uh, Ohio State has to make a, that, that. Is it a trip to Oregon? Is this neutral field? I probably should know this. It's a trip to um, Oregon. A trip to Oregon. They don't seem too optimistic that it's going to happen. But uh, right. I mean, that's still. Uh, if Ohio State were able to run the table, it'd be be a pretty good, pretty good run right there. And that's where it gets scary for Penn State. I, I'm sorry if it was Mark or Sean. I think it was. I think it was you, Sean, who brought it up. If Ohio State, if the one loss is a Penn, is to Penn State, and Penn State suffers their their loss somewhere else, uh, if they have that win over Oregon and it's a close loss at Penn State, and let's say Penn State drops an egg somewhere, you could be talking about a hell of a debate. Penn State going to Indianapolis to play in the Big Ten championship game by virtue of that win over Ohio State. Ohio State sitting at home with their one loss at Penn State and the college football playoff committee has plenty to discuss. Do you take both? Do you take one? Do you block out the team who actually won that matchup? And if you think you have the football playoff situation figured out and the configuration for how it works, then you're ahead of me. So uh, there's a lot to digest there. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's any question about it. I'm just sitting here trying to run numbers in my head. And like I said, Ohio State's going to get the benefit of the doubt. I, I have a hard time seeing Penn State doing that. And if you don't, you know, we're going to get into that that time of the year where if you don't win your conference, you know, you shouldn't be in all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're a long way from that. Let's just, you know, hope we get to that point and, and have that conversation down the line. But for now, we got a mailbag. We got a mailbag. There's your media poll. The whole thing's up online, 247.com, to give it a read through. Here's some other outside perspective on Penn State. And, and it clearly, again, further reinforcing that the Nittany Lions are viewed as the number two squad uh, in the Big Ten this year behind Ohio State. Um, this mailbag from Z Showers, he gave us a couple questions, and we're going to use both of them. Uh, we've got more to get to. We'll, get, we'll do that on the episode later this week. And moving ahead, thank you again for all the mailbag questions. We start with one that I think is, is right in the wheelhouse for Mark because he's seen this progression um, uh, steadily over the course of decades. And he says, how has the type of athlete that Penn State has recruited changed from Joe Paterno to Bill O'Brien and now James Franklin and, and Mark again because you did cover Paterno uh, quite a bit longer than 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 Sean did and, and I never covered a team led by him or O'Brien. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, it's hard to to judge uh, Bill O'Brien. You know the kind of athletes he recruited because he was in a completely different situation. I think you know he obviously he recruited some very elite talent kids who had committed to the program before the sanctions hit, but after that, you know they were almost situations where he had to kind of take guys that, that he could get. So I don't think it's fair to compare, to, to make those comparisons. But the thing that always jumped out to me uh, with Franklin is what he said when he first arrived is that, you know, he was looking for lengthy athletes, you know, guys with long arms and long legs and big head, heads and, and big hands. I'm, I'm putting my hands up as if people are going to see this. Sorry. Uh, but so, so I think there's an element of that. You, you, you've, you've seen much more when you 
uh, go into lash building for an event or if you go to a practice and the players walk by you, uh, even me at, at just a hair under 6'4", I see myself looking up an awful lot, you know, more than I used to. Now, that's not to say that they didn't have some larger players back in the day, but I think if there's one primary difference, and just in terms of the physical types of players, it, Franklin delivered on what he promised. By and large, he was going to get larger, you know, taller, lengthier type players. And I think from a non-physical thing, it's it's very important that Penn State really has reestablished itself as a national recruiting, uh, you know, force isn't the right word, but, you know, a national recruiting factor. I mean, let's face it, toward, and, and Sean would know this, toward the end of uh, Joe's career, they just did not have the coaching resources uh, committed to recruiting. I mean, Galen Hall wasn't hitting the road recruiting. Joe was not hitting the road recruiting. So it was much more difficult for them to hit the Floridas and the Texas and the Californias than it had been um, earlier in their career. I mean, you know, back in the in the 80s and 90s, they recruited all those places, but it just became more difficult. So I think physically, you look at the overall height and length of players, but I do think the one issue that I think a lot of people aren't real, maybe didn't pay attention to, is how Franklin's kind of opened it back up. Uh, to recruiting on a national scene that you're not just relying on recruiting within your footprint. You always want that footprint. You want that to be your base, but you want to be able to go and get kids from Florida and Texas and Georgia and uh, California and Nevada, you know, wherever you can, uh, who are going to fit in with the program. Yeah. And it's, it's something where, you know, you've seen Franklin pump the brakes on guys where, you know, they didn't have the, the ideal measurables. They didn't have, you know, some guys, you know, maybe the tape was too good to pass up like a Mike Miranda or something like that. But you know, you saw a different emphasis on different things. Whereas, you know, I, I joke about this one, uh, Ty Howell, who's back with a, uh, in an analyst role, Ty is, you know, his dad was a coach and listed him at six, two, if Ty's over six foot, I mean, maybe, uh, but it, it's interesting because they essentially took his commitment, you know, before even me- really meeting him. And, and, and some of this stuff has to do, it's different times. I mean, you everybody's bigger across the line these days. I mean, you, you look at uh, some of these athletes that they have now playing certain positions and really probably wouldn't even have been at that position 20 years ago because of it's a different size and speed and athleticism type of combination. But at the same time, I mean, you, you go, you have an average line that's six five versus an average line when it was six three. I mean, remember, you remember Robert Price playing guard at six foot and Ty Howe playing at six one, and and those guys, you know, could scrap it up and could play. And they've had some very good players that were not ideal measurables. But at the same time, if you're gonna bring in more guys with big, you know, uh, heads and features and growth measurables and things like that, you're probably going to hit on them more often than not. So, um, you, you, you like what they've done with that. I, I, you know, it's, it's very different. I mean, Mark, think about it. You look at what Penn state has done in the secondary and, and we talk about the line and all that emphasis. What's Joey Porter jr. You know, 20 years ago. I mean, there's no real, fit for that that type of guy and now now all of a sudden you've got a guy that's you know six pushing six three a corner that can actually move you know like us a, a 511 guy a 510 guy and you know we've seen so many guys that came through prior to the sanction era during the sanction era that maybe didn't fit bill i agree with you bill was at such a disadvantage because he had to find guys that 
towed that line between, hey, you have to play right away and, hey, your body can physically hold up to what we're trying to do, which is eventually outscore guys and not recruit many linemen. And that's the bind that James Franklin found himself in when he got here. So it's it's a very different type of athlete. It's a very different type of uh, of player. So a lot of it goes back to the time that we're playing, that, that we're watching this, this in, but a lot of it goes to that mindset and that, that growth mindset where if you bring in these guys that are, you know, six, six with this long reach and, and length, which by the way is a thing. Um, if you bring these guys in, you're more likely to hit on them. And if you miss, I mean, you're doing okay with the guys that you have. Yeah. Let one thing add- I would add to that, Tyler and, and Sean is, um, you know, we're missing it this year with, with the Penn state camps. But that's where this stuff really kind of you, you saw it. Where uh, under Franklin, they they were, would bring in literally thousands of kids over the course of a summer, and every single one of those kids, you know, was measured, was timed, and then if a kid plays well at camp, what happens? They take them back into Lash Building and get even more measurements on the kid. So it, it's it's like a, it's a scientific thing. And I'm guessing they do that other places, but uh, that's not to say under Joe they didn't measure people when they showed up. But to to do that with all of these kids coming through, thousands of kids, knowing that there may be ten who fit the right measurables that make it worth taking a chance on, you know that to me it, it speaks to the effort that they kind of put in to 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 seeking out these larger athletes and athletes not just larger. They go through all these different tests. You know, it, it was kind of a, they didn't want anybody talking about it early, but the, the triple broad jump uh, is something that they really use as a, uh, as a measurement for who some of the elite athletes is, are. I, I remember Jonathan, Jonathan Sutherland doing it when he was like an eighth grader. And there are certain measurements if a kid gets past 30 feet on that. And it's basically three straight broad jumps. I don't think it's any secret now because there's a video of it everywhere. Uh, but those types of things, it really has become, and Sean, you would know it even better than I would. It's become so much more of a science than a gut feel uh, that maybe it used to be. That gut feel's still there, but it, it's so much more of it is data driven. Yeah, and I look at past classes and say, would this kid get a scholarship now? And that's not always the case, and and that's something where you know you hit the middle of the first decade, and that's uh, you know that <laughs> there were some very different looking athletes. There are guys that you know some some to their credit, developed and, and a lot didn't. So then, and that's something that you saw, uh, unfortunately, as you mentioned, toward, toward the end of the turnover years. And then you transitioned to, to O'Brien and it's, it's very different, very different emphasis. And I will say to his credit, they saw a lot of talent and they knew what talent was. I mean, you, you take a look at some of these guys that they missed on that they have developed into pretty reliable NFL players and some even, even some NFL stars. Um, and it's just uh, to, to think what they could have done with a full array of scholarships if they would have had the appeal that maybe they would have. Had. I mean, you're talking about he's talking about getting Quentin Nelson on campus when he's committed to Notre Dame. And there's no reason Quentin Nelson should even be thinking about visiting Penn State at that point. But, uh, you know, it's just there's a lot of th- a lot of stories like that, that that sort of align with with the way that they evaluated and the way that they looked at it. And they took that NFL mindset. And I think Franklin. Um, when you take a look at, you know, the, the, the approach, you know, Paterno did have that college approach. O'Brien had the pro approach. Franklin kind of balances that with, Hey, how does this guy project in the long run? And you see a class like the 2020 class where you're taking guys like 
um, uh, Olo Fushano and Ibrahim Traore, you know, guys that are going to take a little bit longer. Bryce Mostello, who we talked about earlier, guys that are going to take a little bit longer. But they have that athletic base. They check enough boxes and then you go from there. Looking for those explosive traits. And, and we saw Franklin last year uh, during the summer pull a couple receivers. I think one was Malik Mega, ultimately now on campus as a freshman, pull them out of actual football drills and ask them to, to what, go dunk a tennis ball uh, over the goalposts. Like, just show me that you can. Okay, now do it again and do it again. Um, and that, that, that was pretty interesting to see. You got video of that last year during the summer. Let me, let me throw, let me just kind of twist the question a little bit here. We talked about the type of athlete Penn State has pursued. Now, I remember with Bill O'Brien talking to the guys that he was recruiting for Penn State. A lot of it was about what he you know, accomplished in the NFL, um, NFL system. It was all very much you know, NFL-oriented. Um, and then when you, you hear it from Franklin, uh, it, it's always every coach is, is working together. Franklin's always in communication. Franklin's always popping up during these campus visits. Is that something – was Bill O'Brien as – invested individually in person or, or whether it's on the phone as, as we kind of see James Franklin, what we've heard about Franklin and, and kind of this communal coaching staff effort. And how was it, how was paternal with that, uh, particularly towards the, the latter stages of his career? Were these guys there at the finish line on signing day or were they there to kind of hold your hand through every step of the process? Like it very much seems like Franklin uh, tries to be that much involved. Well, Sean, I'll let you talk about Bill O'Brien, but in terms of Joe, Joe toward the end, uh, he wasn't the last player that Joe uh, actually visited at, at the player's home was Terrell Pryor. The last players that Penn State landed that Joe visited were Derek Moy and Devin Still. So you're talking about a long, you know, with all due respect to Devin and, and Derek Moy, who I like, who are great, great guys, you know, that, that was a pretty long time ago. So uh, it was a completely, completely different dynamic toward the end. And it, I think it just goes to show that when you, when you hit that age, you know, into your 80s, it's very difficult to keep working at that level. You know, the one thing, uh, James Franklin had this has this comment and he said it a bunch early is that, you know, we may not be the smartest, we may not be the best looking, you know, something like that, but nobody's going to outwork us. And I think, and Sean, you could address this even better and Tyler, both of you could address it better than I, but even as somebody who doesn't cover recruiting as de- in as much detail as you do, the work ethic to me is just kind of, it, it, it's off the chart. And I'm trying not to knock Joe because it's very difficult when anybody's that age to, to, I mean, let's face it, physically, it, he was, there were times when he couldn't coach from the sideline. I mean, he had a coach from the press box. So to ask him to go and travel around the country was very difficult to, to do. Now, when a kid came on campus, forget about it. You know, the kid and the family were, were visiting Joe's house, you know, going to campus, then visiting Joe's house. And, you know, Joe was uh, notoriously great at, at landing kids who actually visited his house. But you can't do that anymore. You have to be able to get out there because every other coach is out there visiting the kid as well. So you have to be able to do that. So to me, that's the primary difference. Now, earlier in Joe's career, he recruited as hard as anybody. He worked as hard recruiting, uh, traveling, you know, that sort of thing. And there's another, I mean, more than just recruiting, a a quick story, and I know I'm kind of rambling on here, but early when, when he was trying to put Penn State football on the map, Back in the, the late 60s and early 70s, 
Joe and Jim Tarman weren't just recruiting players. They were recruiting media people. And what they would do is they would load up a suitcase full of liquor and go to all the major media uh, city outlets or all the major uh, city hubs in the East, New York, you know, Philly, uh, DC, probably Harrisburg. And they would set up hospitality suites in the off season and they would invite all the media. Now that probably blows the mind of anybody who was covering Joe toward the end when he didn't want media coverage, but they were actually, so when I talk about how he wasn't getting as much maybe done as he needed to late, I think you also have to give him credit for the, the job he did recruiting, building the program. And it wasn't just players, it was media types. So I know I went off a little bit there, but there's a little flavor for you. I find it hard to believe you can win over media types with liquor. But anyway, here we are. <laughs> uh, going, going back to what Mark touched on, by the end of the Paterno era, the, I, it, it was tough. And I don't want to throw anybody in the bus, but there was a couple of assistants that were diligent in recruiting. There were a few that were not. And when you got into the O'Brien era, it seemed like such a breath of fresh air to see all the guys going out on the road recruiting, all these guys at camp working with the kids, all these different t- these different aspects of recruiting that really any typical staff did. We just really didn't realize it when we were following it. So to see that transition and then to go from Franklin's staff, which was a recruiting staff. I mean, they did a great job developing guys, but you know, they, they all kind of fall, fell in line behind the leader. And that was James Franklin, who was a notorious recruiter when he was an assistant. So you're talking about, uh, you know, exploding on Twitter, taking it, you know, here's where we're at, uh, backhand springs out of bed in the morning, all that kind of campy stuff that, that went on back then. And it's just, it was, it kind of blew people away how much effort they put into it, whether that effort was all that different than what O'Brien's staff put into it. You know, that's a debate for another day, but they were doing it. They were showing it. They were, and there's, you know, there's something to be said to that. And that's something that really won a lot of people over specifically in those early classes um, that, that you could get out there and you could be that guy, or you could be that staff that was, you know, always out there because you, you never thought of Penn state like that. There's another that ties into this conversation from Z Showers. Uh, We can probably hit this one a bit quicker. He says, with such an emphasis on sports science, what is Penn State looking for athletically and measurables-wise at each position? How much emphasis is put on that as opposed to film? And this ties into exactly what we were just discussing with the camps and the measurements and all that different stuff. And Sean, as we've said here in 2020, this is exactly the predicament that Penn State finds itself in trying to feel comfortable, maybe accepting some commitments from guys who have not gotten, you know, those kind of tests on campus from their own staff. And I guess that's my long way of saying that there is a serious emphasis on sports science. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that, I mean, well, the tape comes first. Uh, let's be honest. I mean, you, you're going to talk about uh, measurables and, and length and all these t- types of different metrics that we can use, but the tape comes first. You have to be able to, to play football for the most part. And then you take a look at what boxes these guys check. And for, for every position, it's different. Obviously, James Franklin favors a quarterback that can move, can run. Um, you know, running back is, you know, it's kind of all over the place. You look at the running back room right now and you want everybody to be Saquon, but it's not going to happen. But, you know, it's a pretty good group of physical guys. And as you mentioned, they've got bigger on the lines and that includes tight end. That includes, uh, you know, the, the the emphasis on recruiting tackles because you can turn tackles into guards and more than you can turn guards into tackles. And they've, they've had to do both at times. So, I mean, it, I don't know that there's a, there's a blueprint 
for every position, but it's just, you know, the bigger, the better, the, the, the athletic, the athleticism that comes with it is obviously a huge plus. And, you know, you sort of go from there, you got guys like, uh, like Jason away that, uh, really just a phenomenal physical freak, but at the same time, I mean, you knew that there had to be some elements of football to make that work. Cause we've seen tremendous athletes that have come out of, of, of programs all over the Northeast that just, you know, you really wouldn't recruit. I mean, there's guys that come to camp. You look at some of those, uh, the, the European guys that we talk about, they come to camp and they broad, broad jump 10 foot eight. Well, I mean, some of those, uh, tools don't transfer over to the football field and you really can't take a chance on that. And as, as many chances as they take it on, on projects, uh, not everybody fits that bill. So, the, the amount of research that just goes into it is, is kind of staggering. And sometimes you talk yourself out of taking a kid and maybe that kid turns out being good somewhere else. But uh, there's so much that goes into it. I don't think there's an actual blueprint. Um, but I mean, you got to have a sort of balance between the film and the, and the measurables. We had Chris Hummer on the sh- sh- Sorry, Mark. I was going to say, I think there's a situation. There are also situations where they do – uh, rely on kind of the feel, having a good feel about a kid. And it could come down to more than just athletic ability or size. It could come down to personality. You know, I think KJ Hamler is a good example who obviously had the speed, but there were questions about his size and about his durability. Well, I think they liked his speed and, uh, and um, I'm guessing they loved his personality and, and kind of all of those things. So they were willing to where some programs may be closer to KJ's home and in the Detroit area weren't willing to take a chance on him, Penn State was. And I think that's an important part of, of, of recruiting. You can't do that with every single kid, but if you have a gut feeling about a kid and the personality is the right thing and he's good in, a, in an area or two, uh, yeah, I think they've shown that they're not afraid to go ahead and take a chance on kids here and there. And in some instances, like KJ, it really pays off. I mean, we talked to Chris Summer, who covers the national college football landscape for 24-7 sports last summer, and he was mentioning Penn State and the group of programs that are really embracing the analytical edges that you can find in the recruiting world and the way you assess a product, uh, a prospect, I should say. And, and what, you know, it seems to be you're not recruiting a 17-year-old high school star, more so you're recruiting the trajectory of what he is going to look like when he's a 20, 21 year old athlete fitting within your system. And, and that may be a completely different position than where he is dominating on the high school football field. And I think the other thing is, you know, you're, when you're watching that film, you're not looking at who is that player dominating. You're looking at how are they dominating? What are, you know, what are the qualities, characteristics that they're showing the competitive streak? Um, you know, I think that as as led Penn State to you know to explore some some more of these kids in Canada at early stages in, in their recruitment processes before some of them blow up and and obviously you know, the, the Canadian kids have gotten a lot of offers, but I think that that's one thing where you know whether it's Canadian kid or a kid from a you know a smaller town or or in a football conference that doesn't carry a lot of clout, uh, you know, it, a lot of people probably look good on film in that high school tape, but. How are they dominating? Not necessarily who are they dominating, and and for that you want to see some of those silly measurables, and you want to see that trajectory. Um, and I, I think at the end of the day, it, it maybe leads you to take some some risk from a positional standpoint because maybe that guy isn't going to uh, you know impact the priority need for a position for you. But maybe two three down two three years down the line, he has grown into a different role, and w- once you're finally ready to unleash him. 
he may be a guy who goes out there, blows up for one or two seasons, then goes off to the NFL and, you know, hey, you didn't get a three or four year starter out of it, but you got a guy that you caught him on the right portion of his trajectory and, you know, he can go off to do great things in the NFL and he may be a guy who didn't produce those kind of stats at the high school level. I, I always find it such a, such a hard conversation to have with people, particularly I think it's a generational thing. When we talk about, uh, you know, a middle linebacker um, prospect coming out of high school who maybe doesn't have many power five offers, a Pennsylvania kid doesn't have a Penn State offer, and people say, well, he had, you know, 250 tackles as an upperclassman, but, you know, maybe he goes out and he, he's running off a 4-9, 40-yard dash, and he's, you know, six foot, and he's not getting any bigger, and, and he's kind of maxed out as athletic potential. Then you may see a kid who is, you know, a, a six foot four. What does he play? Defensive coordinator uses him all over the high school field. He plays this, that kind of a positionless kid, you know, had, you know, maybe 40 sacks uh, or 40 tackles over the course of his upperclassman career, but he had some flash moments. And so you're weighing those two resumes. If that kid's six foot three, six foot four, he has that competitive streak you're looking for. Um, you know, I think you're going to tend to turn down some of that high school production because, you know, you can't cash in on the high school production at the college level. What you can cash in on is that athletic potential and that trajectory. Again, you're kind of trying to ride that wave and, and put the trust in Dwight Galt and that staff to get the job done. That reminds me of a story. I was at camp with Mark one time and he, he Mark has the camera. So the parents all automatically float to Mark. <laughs> and I remember him telling me he was talking to a father who said that a particular division one school said that they'd offer his kid if he was just five inches taller and it was just, just five like, inches. Tall. Yes. Um, it was a, a program you were familiar with Tyler. Um, won't name any names here, but if, if I'm five inches taller, I'm an NBA power forward. So, I mean, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of what we're working with here. So it's, uh, it's always fun to, uh, to end on a story like that. Well, I mean, the interesting conversation, something we'll continue to keep tabs on. And one thing that we're, we're just about ready to stop keeping tabs on, Sean, I'm going to concede the, the voting victory to you for the 11-man squad. Congratulations. Um, as of noon today, uh, for, for the teams we drafted a couple episodes ago, 215 votes for you, Sean. That's about 54%, 181 for myself. So I'm happy to not get smeared, uh, but I think at the end of the day, folks saw what I saw as a glaring weakness and that it was going to be hard to keep Sean Clifford upright and able to, to, to able to hit those pass targets that I assembled because of the offensive line potential issues there, potential major issues. You had a nice defensive front, so I'm not surprised to see it end up this way. Unfortunately, we'll never get to see uh, the real result, but it was a fun uh, exercise nonetheless. Closer closer than it should have been, and this one made its way to the football building. I got some feedback on it, and they enjoyed the uh, the little bit that they had, and it was, uh, it was, it was a fun thing. I, like I said, closer than it should have been, but still, it, it, I'll, I'll, take the, I'll take the win. I appreciate your gracious, uh, gracious <laughs> defeat. Well, we'll, uh, we'll do it again next year, and, and it'll be a, a new list of names to, to go through, and we'll see who progressed. As we said, Journey Brown, third-round pick. I don't see him coming off the board last summer. So you see how these, the development goes. Uh, Mark, we're, we're about to wrap up the podcast here. Uh, actually, quick shout-out. We did one last time. These guys are getting engaged in bunches all of a sudden. Mike Kosicki last time. Now Robert Windsor shares the good news of an engagement via social media, uh, moving on to the NFL as a rookie this year, moving on to the next phase of his life um, as a fiance. So congrats uh, to Robert. 
Mark, always, always a pleasure to get you on. In, in strange circumstances, we got to just do kind of a normal circumstances episode with you, maybe before the season. Uh, but last time you were in limbo in Ohio somewhere waiting for the Indianapolis uh, trip and, and the Big Ten tournament, and now some controversy on the basketball side. But I'm glad we got to talk about plenty of football with you today. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to some people at uh, Penn State, you know, involved with Penn State hoops, and it's like, you know, we go from having no Penn State hoops coverage, and I put together that little thing on DJ Newbill playing into TBT, and then all of a sudden everything explodes, and we have, you know, hoops coverage galore. But you guys know, hey, you guys always do a tremendous job, and anytime you need me to come in and talk hoops, or uh, if any of you have to take a little bit of a break from it, just just give me a, a shout, and I'm happy to do it. It's always It's always a lot of fun. We'll get you back on board soon. That's going to do it for this episode. We'll be back with another one later in the week. We got a lot to dive into uh, with the five-star mailbag. Keep your questions and comments coming on Apple Podcasts. Leave that five-star rating and review. Throw your question or two in there. Uh, we had a couple today. We were able to answer both of those, uh, and uh, that's going to be it. So listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Stay informed, of course, on the website, lines247.com where you can get 30% off an annual VIP subscription or climb in for $1 for one month and take a look and see what you like. Uh, that's going to do it. On behalf of Mark Brennan, Sean Fitz, I'm Tyler Donahue. We'll catch you later in the week.